0: For today, as you can see on the screen, we've mentioned this for the last couple of weeks, we're starting what you might call a risky move, <laughs> and we're going to start discussing Roman Catholicism, as well as a little bit of Eastern Orthodoxy, mostly into next week. That, that one's not so risky. When we talked about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, I quickly asked for people to to, raise their hands if they had any family members as part of those faiths or even knew anybody that were part of those faiths. And you could probably count the responses on just 10 fingers, didn't even need to take my shoes off. I don't anticipate that to be the case uh, today. So just to take a quick poll, starting with the one that got zero responses those last two times, do we have any former Roman Catholics in the room? Okay got a few. How about someone who has a relative who is Roman Catholic? Okay, just to make sure we get everybody, who knows a Roman Catholic?
1: <laughs>
0: okay, let's go one step further. Who has been to a Roman Catholic Mass, which would include a wedding, because that's a full Mass. Okay, who, one more, who has partaken of the Eucharist at a Roman Catholic Mass, taken the Lord's Supper? Get out! <laughs> totally kidding. I, I, I have, I have as well. Uh, in hindsight, I wish I would not have. I probably wouldn't in the future. But starting to get the picture. Today is going to hit a little bit differently. Talking about Roman Catholicism than when we talked about these strange Christian spinoffs or things like Islam. This is going to hit a lot more close to home. So I do want to quickly hit a few disclaimers or maybe ground rules. Number one, I have no intention of discussing whether your particular family members or the friends that you know that are in the church are saved or not. That's really not my business, not my call. I will say, I'll put, put two things out there, I do believe that there are likely hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people in the Roman Catholic Church that truly have placed their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ for their, their salvation, and that we will see them in eternity. But I also strongly believe that the Roman Catholic Church and many within it are in gross error and do not have the gospel and are in error when it comes to the practical idolatry of, of Mary, the representation of the sacrifice of Christ at every Mass in the Eucharist, their understanding of the priest as an alter Christus, as another Christ, or as the Pope, as a vicar of Christ, as a substitute of Christ. Lots of things that are in gross error there. Now, I know those two Things that I put are kind of in conflict, but I, I stand by them. Um, but again, not going to discuss the particular people you know. Number two would be that there's no possible way that we could get into all the different theological distinctives of either Roman Catholicism this week or Eastern Orthodoxy next week. No chance we can talk about all of them. Even if we had the time, I'm not equipped to talk about all of those things. Uh, I've studied these to the extent where I can talk somewhat intelligently about several aspects of them, but not nearly all of them. I don't know all of the arguments for or against all of the different distinctives um, between Protestantism and these faiths. I'd be more than happy to share with you some of the resources that I've used, some interviews that I've watched that have been helpful, or debates that have been very helpful. Happy to share that with you. But there's a very good chance that if you ask me a question, the answer might be, I don't know and you'll have to be gracious with me in that. The main purpose of this week with Roman Catholicism uh, is to look at it as a world worldview and see how, at least in my estimation, it differs from the biblical worldview in a number of different ways, and we can talk about some of the distinctives if we have time, but that's my main intent. Um, there are a lot of particulars that are very, very interesting, but maybe don't make such a big worldview impact, so I want to try to stick to that if we can. Um, In terms of analysis of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, some of the bigger picture things are very similar between the two, so next week we'll be more focused on Eastern Orthodoxy, but I'm not going to retake it through the whole T-A-K-E-S thing like we're going to do with Catholicism today, but next week's also when we'll get to more of the evaluation. I don't anticipate time today with what I'm going to say and then try to give time for It is important to think about these for a number of reasons. Something that I think has probably sneaked up on a lot of us, at least sneaked up on me, is that there's been a number of both high-profile conversions as well as just raw number conversions of people leaving evangelicalism, going to Roman Catholicism lately. You usually hear about the other way. And maybe more surprising in America is more and more people moving from evangelicalism to Eastern Orthodoxy. which sounds like something over there, but it's actually growing in North America. And I think both of those have less to do with the really distinctive theological things, because they are theologically distinct. I think more of that has to do with a bit of a disillusionment with some of evangelicalism and maybe a desire for more certainty moving to, to Rome with having a certain interpretation of Scripture, for example. And maybe moving to the Eastern Orthodoxy, a desire for more mystery or mysticism or a experiential theology. It's very much an experience on that side. I think that's where um, those conversions are coming from. But if we're on board with all that, I'll pray, and then we will get into it for today. Well, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this beautiful morning and this beautiful week that we've had. Pray that this morning will... Be edifying for us, uh, not cause controversy or division, but make clear what uh, your truth is and where we believe um, the Catholic Church is in error and uh, what we ought to do about it. I pray that uh, these things be done in your in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, I don't have my clicker. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to start with trying to do the basic idea of Catholicism, kind of like we've done with the other uh, face up to this point. Try to boil it down to one single idea, if we can. I'm <coughs> clicking as hard as I can. It's not you know, There we go. Um, Again, my main focus this week is going to be Catholicism, and then we'll look at Orthodoxy next week, but they actually have a very similar basic idea, at least the way that uh, I've worded it. So if I were to define the basic idea that would cover both of these religions, I would say it this way, that salvation comes through Jesus Christ and the church, Jesus Christ and the church. Now, to distinguish for Roman Catholicism, that would specifically mean through Jesus Christ and the Roman Catholic Church under the leadership uh, of the Pope. For Eastern Orthodoxy, that would mean salvation through Jesus Christ and the Church as they define it, which would basically be the Orthodox churches and the Church uh, councils that doesn't have a single authority, doesn't come to a point like the Pope, but I'll expand more on that uh, next week. But both would say that salvation comes through Jesus Christ as well as through the one true church, and of course they disagree on what church uh, that would be, but both would suggest that that one true church is infallible when it speaks authoritatively. Speaking of Rome, at least when it comes to prior generations, they would officially say that there is no salvation outside of the church. Um, We'll see this if my my clicker must be out of batteries or something. But this is from the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. Woo! Nobody move. We're going to make this work just fine. No problem. Okay. So this is from the Fourth Lateran Council of, of 1215. So this is the church speaking authoritatively. Um they said there is one universal church of the faith of the faithful outside of which there is absolutely no salvation. And then from the, the Catholic the catechism of the Catholic Church of 1995, so much more recent, the, they have the church in this world is the sacrament of salvation, the sign and instrument of the communion of God and men. So the Roman Church considers itself to be Christ's instrument of salvation through the world. It is through the church that salvation comes. Now, anytime you see church, I mean, those statements in, in, on their own might not sound that bad, but don't think church in Protestant terms. When we think of the church, talking big picture, we're usually thinking the universal, invisible church. So Christians all around the world today, we call that the universal church, for example. They specifically mean the Roman Catholic church, the one true church, Uh, in their terms. So according to the Roman church, they would say that they were founded, their church was founded by Christ when Christ gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter, and then succession below that. But those keys of the kingdom were given to Peter to bring about salvation to the world, to be dispensing divine grace through the sacraments, specifically things like through baptism and the Eucharist, those would be the main two, Um, although there are others, but it's through the church. Christ gave them the authority to do that, and without that authority, there is no salvation. We'll dig more into those things. Let's talk about numbers really quickly, and then we'll throw in a little bit of trivia. Uh, First thing is there are approximately 1.4 billion people who claim to be Roman Catholics in the world today. That's, like, that's about 17% of the total human beings alive on the planet. So that's a pretty big number. That means right around one in six human beings alive is a baptized member of the Roman Catholic Church. In the United States, that is uh, one person out of four is a baptized Roman Catholic, although admittedly a lot of those would be Catholic in name only. Uh, they would consider themselves Catholics. They'd call themselves Catholics, but to the extent to which they actually go to church or participate in Catholicism would be, you know, another matter. In terms of trivia, this is an open trivia question here. I don't have any prizes, but you can tell people you got it right. Who knows which state in the United States has the highest percentage of Roman Catholics in it? So not 32% of Rhode Island are baptized Roman Catholics. Bigger picture, how about the most Catholic country in the world in terms of numbers? So raw numbers, number of Roman Catholics in a country. What's the, who's got the most? What country has the most?
1: Italy. Africa. Mexico. Indonesia. <laughs> no, nope.
0: It's Brazil. Brazil has the most, with 140 million, which is actually about 65% of their population there. So, big Roman Catholic population in Brazil. How about the highest, how about the country with the highest percentage of Catholics? Not number of, but highest percentage of Catholics. And I'll even, well, no, I won't give you a map for that yet.
2: Yeah,
0: Italy. I've heard Italy. No, but keep going. So It's a little bit of a trick question, I'm going to tell you that. Rome? Close. Go a little smaller than Rome. Vatican City. Vatican City. So Vatican City is technically an independent city-state. It's a country, and it's 100% Catholic. Um, there, are, there, are only, uh, there are only 800 people there, uh, but they're all Catholic. I don't think you'd last very long there if you weren't, if you weren't Catholic. So it's big though, um, big population. Let's go to a brief history of Roman Catholicism, and you know we're boiling down 2,000 years of church history here in just a couple minutes, but we're gonna give it a crack. But basically, in short, after the apostolic age, the New Testament era, the early church in the first couple of centuries started to develop and grow into a, a system of a, Episcopalianism meaning that different churches and groups of churches were ruled by bishops. That's what Episcopalianism means. And over time, as that grew in the Episcopal system, one particular bishop, the Bishop of Rome, started becoming increasingly preeminent. He got to be a bigger deal, mainly due to the the significance of Rome in world affairs uh, at the time. And eventually, that Bishop of Rome claimed to himself leadership of the church as a whole, and really as over the entire world in terms of faith and practice, which led to some considerable tension um, within the Roman Empire, you know, some church and state type tension. But for this reason, uh, among others, there was eventually a split in the church, a permanent split between the Western church and the Eastern church. So Rome representing um, the West there, and the church split East and West, in 1054. This is known as the Great Schism. We'll talk about it a little more next week, but that's where we got Eastern Orthodoxy on one side, Roman Catholicism on the other side. A couple things led to that split. One was, um, if you guys are familiar with the Nicene Creed, some of the wording of the Nicene Creed as it relates to the Holy Spirit, there's a big controversy called the Filioque Clause. Um, We'll talk about that next time. The East didn't like a change that the West made to it. But then the bigger thing was... This claim from the Roman pontiff, for his claim as preeminence, his claim that the, he was part of the, the mother church and that all other churches need to submit to that bishop of Rome. The East wasn't on board with that. And in the end, the leaders of the Eastern church and the Western church actually excommunicated each other. They declared each other illegitimate, and they remain split to this day. So for another almost 1,000 years, the, the church has been split in that way. Um, then, of course, I forgot about doing this stuff. Uh, Then, of course, in the 16th century, another big development. We had the Protestant Reformation, uh, infamously, that's the one, led by um, Martin Luther. Uh, He had some specific issues that he was taking up with the Roman Church, not intending to split from them, but he had issue with the selling of indulgences. The teaching of indulgences in general wasn't good, but in particular, the abuse of that doctrine and how it obscured the gospel led to his uh, 95 theses. What ultimately ended up being the biggest reasons for split, the biggest issues of the Reformation, were the doctrine of justification as well as authority. So the question was, Is are we justified by sola fide, by faith alone, or is it faith plus some kind of works that save somebody? And then in terms of authority, is our final authority sola scriptura, meaning that Scripture alone is our final and ultimate arbiter of right faith and practice, or is it scripture plus tradition, the tradition as taught by the popes and the councils as equal authority alongside scripture? Those are the big two things. Uh, Catholics initiated a counter-reformation shortly after that, their response to the Protestant Reformation, and that involved somewhat of a moral reform in the church. They acknowledged there was a lot of moral corruption that needed to be cleaned up. They needed to, to sort out their leadership in particular. But there was also really a solidification of Catholic doctrine in distinction to the Reformers. So there wasn't really a coming to an agreement or loosening up on some things. It was more of a hardening of their doctrine, and that culminated with the um, Council of Trent in uh, 1545 through 1563, which denounced the teachings of the Reformers, particularly denounced the teaching of justification by faith alone as... Uh, heresy. So the reformers were declared to be heretics. Also at the Council of Trent um, is when they formally defined the Roman Catholic canon of scripture, deciding what books were for sure considered sacred scripture, which included the Apocrypha, that we call it that, they tend to call it the deuterocanonical books, which we do, we do not accept. We'll come back to that a little bit uh, later. That brings us to the 19th century and the uh, first Vatican Council, which was a very significant council that they had over 1869 and 70. One of the most significant things, as you can see on here, that came out of that was the official declaration of papal infallibility. You've probably heard of that one. It's often misunderstood. I misunderstood it for some time. It doesn't mean that the pope is always infallible it means that when the pope teaches dogmatically when he's speaking ex cathedra is the word when he's speaking as the teaching authority of the church those pronouncements those teachings are infallible therefore they cannot be changed they cannot be revised they can't be deemed to be an error except for cases when they can Um, but that's the that's the (laughs) official uh, teaching of infallibility Then there was a Second Vatican Council much more recently. That was in the 1960s. There was also some very big changes there, especially around their doctrine of salvation. Uh, We saw on the basic idea slide how exclusivist it was initially, salvation only coming through the church. Well, in the Second Vatican Council, it became much more inclusive, uh, almost radically so. Um, But you no longer have to be a baptized member of the Roman Catholic Church to be saved, and we may come back to that later. later on, because it is significant, but one of the statements in this Second Vatican Council was that Protestants are no longer considered heretics, so that's good news, um, but we are considered to be separated brethren. That's the new term is separated um, brethren, but that is a big shift. So people can be saved if they've received some kind of Christian baptism, but they're not considered to be in communion still with the one true church. So that's what kind of what separated brethren means. So not outright damned anymore, but not part of the true church either. But even more radically, this council suggested that even non-Christians could be saved. That would include uh, Jews, Muslims, even people that haven't heard the gospel at all, were considered potentially being, um, what were they called, Uh, anonymous Catholics is what they were called. So people that were, had a good enough knowledge of God and were living a good enough life could still be saved. And I actually remember with Pope Francis, I think it's been a couple years ago now, he was interacting with a young boy whose father had just passed away, and the young boy asked if his daddy was in heaven, and the daddy was admittedly an unbeliever. He was an atheist. And the pope told him that, well, he must have been a very good man if he had you baptized. So basically saying he was likely uh, in heaven. He wasn't speaking infallibly there. That wasn't ex cathedra, but that's kind of what this new view, a logical end to it, is there's really no ultimate standard for how you would be saved. So obviously that's a brief history, a lot more that we could cover there about the Roman Catholic Church. These are some of the main points, at least for our purposes. We'll do something similar next time with Eastern uh, Orthodoxy and get into some of their theological distinctives without going through the T-A-K-E-S model. But we are going to go through that model today with Roman Catholicism, so we'll look at the theology, anthropology, knowledge, ethics, and salvation and a lot of there there is a lot of crossover with eastern orthodoxy so it is very similar but we'll start with catholicism on theology and really I'm just going to click through this whole thing because in terms of theology proper our understanding of god in relation to the world we're pretty much in agreement here we both affirm the doctrine of the trinity we both affirm um, god being the father son holy spirit being creator of heavens and earth and his purposes, all those kinds of things. There's really nothing to disagree on here. So for the sake of time, I might just skip this whole uh, section. We might have some small nitpicking things, but there's no sharp disagreements between uh, what Protestants and Roman Catholics believe in in a theology proper space. So we'll just move straight into anthropology then. Um, Here we also see some similarities, but there are some differences uh, also. So we wanna make sure we point those out. But first, just talking about their view of mankind. They do believe that humans are created in the image of God, the standard biblical teaching there. We're good there. They also believe that we have both bodies and souls that survive death. Again, common standard Orthodox teaching. um, Going kind of quickly through these. In terms of the purpose of life, they would say that our purpose is to be in relationship with God. That's the standard Roman Catholic um, teaching there. Also good. But that's not going well. For us, we're not as we um, should be. We are sinful by nature. Um, They would say that we're not just sinners, but we are sinful by nature. So they do hold to the doctrine of original sin. They still teach the historicity of a literal fall of mankind with Adam and Eve, and that Adam's sin was passed down, that inherited by us that we are born with. But I would add that their doctrine of original sin is not maybe as strong as the Protestant doctrine. Um, You may hear of a term like total depravity in the Protestant world or the, the noetic effects of sin. We believe that sin has affected every aspect of humanity. Nothing is left unstained by it. Not that we're as bad as we could be, of course, but everything has been affected in some way. Roman Catholicism more teaches that the human nature is wounded. That's the, that's the wording that they use, that the human nature is wounded, but not dead in sin. Wounded by, but not dead in sin. So they would suggest that there is still some freedom of the will and of the mind to turn towards God, even in um, the fallen state. Whereas we would say that can't happen without um, action by the Holy Spirit. So not as fallen as our theology would hold. Um, they believe the mind to still be in a good enough state to, to um, be all right. Um, In terms of destiny of mankind, there will be a final judgment day, a day of judgment, and there will be an afterlife. Physical death is not the end, but their final judgment and afterlife works a little bit different. Who gets into heaven? Well, they would say that good Catholics will go to heaven. That is, people who die in a state of grace. Those who are in good standing uh, with the church don't have any unpaid-for sins anymore which is unlikely. But when they die, they would go to heaven, likely not immediately though. Almost certainly, Catholics that pass away will have to go through purgatory first. And purgatory is, in their doctrine, an intermediate state before making it into heaven. That purgatory period is kind of still viewed as a punishment for sins, sins that you've not done a full penance for, looking into some of their theology of penance. So there's an atoning dimension to in it. You, to it. You're in purgatory atoning for some of your sins while you are there, and this is very standard um, Catholic teaching. You'll find lots on purgatory in the Catholic Catechism. Now your passage through purgatory can be sped up by what are called indulgences. Indulgences is still a thing that can still be uh, attained. That wasn't just a medieval teaching that caused the whole hubbub (laughs) with Martin Luther. Uh, That's still a thing. They still teach a doctrine of indulgences. And what they call a treasury of merits for where you can get those indulgences. What's changed is now you can't buy them. That was the big controversy in Martin Luther's day, is that the Rome was selling indulgences uh, so you could buy your way through purgatory quicker for yourself or for your relatives so that they could fund the building of cathedrals and such. They don't sell them anymore, but indulgences is still a, a thing. And that's what you're when you are when you go to confession and the priest tells you to do some kind of good works or do Hail Marys, those are indulgences. That's how you are getting that speedier way out of purgatory. Uh, in terms of who goes to hev- heaven, um, is it just Catholics? Kind of going back to what I said, it really depends on who you ask and when you uh, ask them. Um, and we'll come back to that a little bit later, maybe. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches now, at least following that Second Vatican Council that we talked about, that some non-Catholics, such as Protestants, even the Eastern Orthodox they split with, maybe even Jews and Muslims, maybe even more, uh, could go to heaven. But the rest, of course, will um, go to hell. And they see hell essentially the same way as we do eternal torment um, and punishment for for those that don't meet their criteria. I was gonna say for those that that don't have faith in Jesus, but that's not exactly the criteria. For those that don't meet the, the criteria that they have will go to hell. In terms of knowledge, talk about where they get their knowledge, particularly of things about God and God's will and his purposes. Traditional Roman Catholicism teaches that there is divine revelation. Of course, they teach that, that we can know things through divine um, revelation. They would count that as both natural revelation, like seeing the created order, as well as God speaking directly to his people. So they do hold to a, a word of God, but that word of God for the Catholic comes in two, uh, two forms. They have both sacred scripture as well as sacred tradition. So I'm going to read from one of their official documents that came out of the Second Vatican Council on this. And this is a document called uh, Dei Verbum, or the Word Word of God, which is what defined in more detail the Roman Catholic Church's view of uh, Revelation. They said this, sacred scripture and sacred tradition form one sacred deposit of the Word of God committed to the Church. So the Word of God, when we think Word of God, we're just thinking Bible. But for them, the Word of God is, comes in one deposit, but in two forms, in tradition and Scripture. You know, there's, there's debate on what exactly that means. Does that mean that they're two separate sources? You get some stuff from tradition, some source from Scripture, and bring it together to get the full picture uh, to figure it out. The more modern view that they've kind of agreed upon is that tradition doesn't actually add anything new to Scripture, so the, so Catholics would say that all of the doctrines of the Catholic Church can be found in the Bible somewhere. But caveat: you need the Catholic Church to show you where, because they would they would say it's not clear. You can't just read the Bible to find these things. The church needs to infallibly, infallibly interpret it for you to tell you where those doctrines are. Now, knowing what some of those doctrines are, I, I see that to be not a very accurate description because they can't be found in Scripture, in my view. But if if it requires the church's infallible interpretation of it, that's a, a handy loophole <laughs> uh, to get it there. Uh, as I did mention, their canon of Scripture is not the same as ours. They would hold to again, what we call the apocryphal books. Again, they call them deuterocanonical or second canon, um, but they affirm those books. Those are seven books written between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, known as the intertestamental period. <coughs> intertestamental period. There's also some additions to the books of Esther and Daniel in there. Um, but those books are important for establishing some of the distinctive Roman Catholic Uh, doctrines, such as the doctrine of purgatory, comes from some of the literature in the Apocrypha. I still think it's a stretch, but that's where they um, get it from. So again, two forms of the Word of God, Scripture and tradition, but that's still not quite the full picture. Uh, The Roman, Roman Catholicism also teaches that the Church alone can give the authoritative interpretation of those two forms of the Word of God. So this, again, is going to come from that Dei Verbum document from the Second Vatican Council. It says, The task of authentically interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed on, so scripture or tradition, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. So their own Roman Catholic Church alone, in their view, has been entrusted to be the living teaching office or their, their term would be the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, that is the teaching authority. And that authority resides with the Pope, um, the bishops that are in communion with the Pope, uh, they hold that teaching authority. So the leadership, essentially, of the Roman Catholic Church, but particularly the Pope, um, has this ability to give authoritative interpretation. And those three things together, so scripture, tradition, and the teaching, living teaching office of the church, is what is necessary to get an authoritative interpretation of divine revelation. Just to go a little further on that Dei Verbum document. It says, It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others, and that all together and each in its own way under the action of one Holy Spirit contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. So they would say you can't have just one of these things without the other. You can't have two of them without the third one. You have to have all three to get an accurate understanding of divine revelation, leading to how people can mm, be saved. Now there are some interesting implications of that. One of those that you may be familiar with is that any individual Christian in the Catholic view doesn't have the right to what they call private interpretation. So that would mean that no particular Christian, no individual among us, for example, would have the right to read the Bible for ourselves, to study the Bible for ourselves, and come to our own conclusion in good conscience before God that differs from what the Roman Catholic authoritatively has taught. They would say, you can't just read doctrine off the pages of Scripture. They must follow the authoritative interpretation. So even if a Catholic were to read the Bible and believe, that it, believe wholeheartedly that it says X, if the church says that it says Y, well, then you have to believe why, because that's what the church teaches. And what that is, in effect, is a denial of the clarity of Scripture, a doctrine we hold to called the perspicuity of Scripture, saying that Scripture is clear, that we can't understand it. They would deny that uh, outright. They would outright say that Scripture is not clear enough in and of itself for just anyone to read it and come to a saving knowledge Jesus Christ. They say it can only be made clear through the teaching authority of the church, through Scripture and tradition. Um, They do hold that Scripture is infallible. That is still a a standard traditional teaching, but there is more than one infallible source. So, namely again, popes and councils, when they speak ex cathedra, can also be or are, are infallible. The popes and the councils together can infallibly define doctrines, and they have done so on uh, many occasions. And from that, official teachings, anything that's been officially taught by the Roman Catholic Church, is binding on Roman Catholics. It's binding on Christians. So That means that it would be a sin to not believe and obey an authoritative interpretation, an authoritative tr- interpretation of the Church. Now. You can disagree with the pope on stuff. Um, Popes can say things that you disagree with as long as he's not speaking ex cathedra. Popes are still considered fallible on other occasions. But if and when the church, through the pope or a council, dogmatically defines doctrine that is binding on all Christians and they must accept it de fide, uh, they call it. So practically, what you end up with is that the living teaching office of the church for Rome really holds the position for Catholics as the Bible holds for us, as for Protestants. Our ultimate final authority is the Bible. That's what sola scriptura means. That's the final word for us. For Catholics, the ultimate authority, again, at least practically, functionally speaking, is what the Church teaches, what the Church tells you that the Bible says and what tradition says, that's the final word. Now, the... This was a little easier for for Rome in the time when people weren't very literate, when people couldn't read the Bible for themselves. It was a little easier to get people to just buy into what they said the doctrines were, but um, now it's not quite as easy. Then you had to rely on whatever the priest was telling you because you couldn't read the Bible for yourself. You either didn't have one, you couldn't get one, or you didn't know how to read. Now, people today are more literate in that more people can read. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that people are more biblically Uh, literate, though. We probably don't find that many more people know what the Bible actually says. And what we often find with Roman Catholics is that they're often rather unaware of what the Bible itself says. They're not really encouraged to read and study the Bible on their own because they're not supposed to come to their own conclusions about what they're reading anyway. So if you read it and studied it a whole bunch on your own, if you came up with an understanding that differed from the church, you'd have to abandon it anyway and believe what um, the Church says. So what you typically find with Roman Catholics, this is a, a broad brush statement, not talking about your particular grandmother, but broad brush, they aren't in the Word themselves very often. A quick thing that I'll add, we too use other references to help us understand what the Bible means. Okay, uh, We read commentaries, we have study notes at the bottom of the half of the pages of our Bibles, we go to Sunday school classes to get extra teaching, That's very different to what we're talking about with Rome. Um, We do believe sola scriptura, scripture alone as the final authority, but not solo scriptura, scripture only and nothing else uh, as a source of learning. We use and trust and can count on commentaries or study Bibles insofar as they are subordinate to scripture and are accurately describing what scripture says. Uh, I have a MacArthur study Bible. I just got the MacArthur New Testament commentaries. As great as those things are, They're not Scripture. They are subordinate to Scripture, and I would have to abandon something in the commentary if it disagrees with Scripture. Um, MacArthur, Pastor MacArthur, does not infallibly interpret Scripture. Hopefully that didn't give anybody a a heart attack. We all love Pastor MacArthur. Um, Pastor Kevin can err on his interpretation of Scripture as well. That happens. And if that were to happen, Our consciences are not bound to believe 100% everything that Pastor Kevin says, for example. If we believe in our hearts that it disagrees with Scripture and our conscience is captive to Scripture, we can disagree with our pastor and our other teachers. We're free to do that where the Catholic is not. Let's go to um, ethics, their view of morality. Uh, In general, we have standard Christian view of morality. They would say it's not based on human opinion, but based on the revealed will of God. We would agree with that. Um, But for the Catholic, that revealed will of God really comes from three sources, and that would be natural law, scripture, and tradition. Um, Roman Catholic ethics are more or less centered on, you know, the Ten Commandments, the golden rule to love your neighbor as yourself. But many of its maybe more distinctive positions, at least in culture, Uh, that they follow come from what they call natural law along with tradition. Natural law, at least in the Catholic view, uh, is the understanding that God's moral law can be discerned just from nature itself, from the natural order of things. Our moral duties can be known not only from our uh, God-given consciences, but also reasoned to based on the order of nature itself. So whatever is natural if you can understand how nature has been designed to work then that is the right way to do something it's kind of a tricky one i see where they're going with that Um, i would contend though that if we don't have the light of special revelation we can easily um, get that wrong Um, but coming to some of their specific uh, positions of the roman catholic church they are famously uh, conservative on social ethics particularly on sexual issues Um, They take a lot of flack for that in the culture, for holding fast to conservative, traditional, biblical ethics on things. Um, I do worry about the current pope. I don't know if he will be able to stand up to it um, for that much longer. Marriage is an interesting view for them. They do view marriage as sacred, but marriage is also a sacrament for them. Uh, That means that the marriage ceremony is actually infusing grace, so actual grace is being infused into the participants in that. Given that, um, for the Catholic, divorce is always sinful in every scenario, whereas we would hold that there are a couple biblical scenarios where divorce is warranted, things like um, infidelity and abandonment. But it's always sinful for the Catholic. Sexual immorality, sexual deviancy, these are very serious, at least in principle, in Catholic teaching, whether they're entirely consistent um, with that, particularly in the way that they've handled some of their bad scandals in the past, um, would be another discussion. The Roman Catholic Church is also very well known for its insistence that human life is sacred from conception. The Roman Catholic Church is very, very firmly pro-choice, even if many professing Catholics are not, including some very, very high-profile politicians. What did I say? I said pro-choice? Let the record show. I meant pro-life, very, very, very pro-life. Maybe I had a couple politicians in mind (laughs) when I said that. (laughs) But the official teaching is um, pro-life, but you'll see very high-profile Catholics who are very, very, very pro-choice. And there's some controversy with, for example, Nancy Pelosi. It was a big deal that, I don't remember the actual position, a bishop or an archdiocese or something, publicly rebuked her and said that she should not be served uh, communion because she's so outwardly professing anti-Catholic beliefs. And it's surprising to see how many non-Catholics have a lot to say about how Catholics should believe or not believe Catholic teaching um, when that came out. But the Catholic Church officially is very, very pro-life. We owe much to Roman Catholics over the last many decades for their work in the pro-life movement for Supreme Court justices like uh, Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett with the reversal of Roe v. Wade, which was more about how law is supposed to work in our constitutional um, system. It wasn't so much a religious or scientific debate, but as we know, there is no neutrality. So I am glad that their Roman Catholic convictions led to how they um, voted and how they stand on those positions. So we owe much to them. In addition to being um, pro-life in the womb, it's not a dogmatic position, but the more official position of the Catholic Church is that capital punishment should also be avoided, except where, in their words, it is absolutely necessary to defend society. I don't quite know what that means, but practically what it means is they're against capital punishment um, in pretty much all scenarios. As for contraception, you're probably familiar with their view of contraception. The use of contraception is viewed as sinful and can even be viewed as a, a mortal sin, which puts you outside of grace of God. So they distinguish between what are called venial sins and mortal sins. Venial sins are the less serious ones, like lying would be a venial sin. If you have a mortal sin, which there is a small category of what's a mortal sin, that puts you outside of a state of grace in, in their view. And using contraception can be deemed in some scenarios a mortal sin. They take it that seriously. They only allow for natural methods of birth control. Uh, The rationale for this, again, this kind of goes back to their natural law view of things. They would say that the sexual act, the purpose of it is procreation. The purpose isn't pleasure, that's just a fringe benefit, uh, I suppose. But the natural purpose or the telos of sexual intercourse is for procreation. So if you are engaging in that activity without at least the intent to procreate, they would say that's an abuse of the body and abuse of Um, sexual act. So note that's a case of that natural law reasoning that they've used to get there. It probably goes back to a more medieval view of how procreation actually happens. Um, Science, our understanding of how the sperm plus the egg make a baby has moved on, but the Catholic teaching um, has not. Let's run away from that conversation as fast as possible (laughs) and we'll talk about salvation because this is really where some differences start to pop out, the Roman Catholic view of salvation. So what is our basic problem with human beings, and what is the solution? Well, our basic problem is fairly obvious. It's sin. We can agree with that. Sin is rebellion. Sin is disobedience to God, and the result of sin is that our relationship with God is now broken, and we are not worthy of eternal life. That's how they would describe that. So that's the problem. The solution, to use one word in the Roman Catholic view, would be sanctification, okay, sanctification. So we need to become holy again. We need to have our sinfulness removed. If we want to be right with God, we need to become righteous. We need to become righteous, that's their view. And that's the only solution to such a problem. And this is what leads to a fairly distinctive, at least in terms of our view, view of justification. What justification means in Christian theology, that's God's declaration that we are righteous, that somebody is righteous. So God acting as a judge, making a declaration like a judge in a courtroom would, that a person is innocent, that a person is righteous. The question is, what's the basis for that judgment? On what basis is somebody declared to be righteous before God? Well, according to the Roman Catholic teaching, according to their theology, justification is based on inherent righteousness. So that is, you're only justified if you yourself are inherently righteous, and you're not fully justified until you are fully righteous, fully without sin. They would say that we are justified by faith. They would say that, but not by faith alone. They would say that we are justified by a combination of faith and meritorious works, works that we do to earn ourselves divine favor. they they will still insist that we are saved by grace. Sometimes we caricaturize the Catholic Church and say that they don't believe in salvation by grace. That's not actually true. They do believe in salvation by grace. They don't believe in works rather than grace. They would say that we are saved by grace and works together. They don't see any conflict between being saved by grace and being saved by works. They see that as a um, synergy. The basis for justification in their teaching is a combination of faith given by grace and our works together. And the way that they would define grace isn't the way that we would. And that's part of where the definitions come into play. They would say that God's grace is uh, his help. It's a divine help to help us in becoming more righteous. So they would say divine grace is absolutely necessary for salvation. God's grace is necessary for salvation but it's not sufficient for salvation. It's his divine grace that uh, enables us to merit eternal life. So we receive the divine grace. We are then able to become more and more holy. And then finally, we will be justified when we are fully holy, which for almost anybody, that wouldn't happen in this life. And that would have to be finished then in purgatory. So any unholiness, unholiness you still have at your death, purgatory is where you would burn that off for lack of a better phrase. How do we get the divine grace? That's an important question. If, if we need this divine grace to merit eternal life, how do we get it? Well, that's where there's actually a number of places that you can get this divine grace. There are many channels of divine grace with um, baptism being the first and most important of their sacraments. That's the primary means of grace in the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that baptism actually regenerates. It actually, that act of the pouring of water or sprinkling of water converts the soul in their view. So people are actually born again through baptism. Uh, That is the beginning of a new spiritual life for that infant. Um, Baptism is understood to wash away both original sin, um, it gets rid of the stain of original sin, and any personal sins that you have at that time. So as a baby, not that many. But as an adult convert, if I were to convert to Catholicism today, and I was baptized, that would wash away the original sin of Adam, as well as any of my previous sins. That would basically wipe the slate clean for me at that point. Not for good, but for at that point. Um, And this initial grace of justification, they would suggest, is not merited. So that is a free gift of grace, because you're not doing anything at baptism. It's something that happens to you. That's divine grace being imparted to somebody. They use the term infused. You're infused with grace. But then there are other graces um, later on that you can merit by doing stuff. Baptism is unique in that it's the the free gift. It's the one unmerited out of their seven total sacraments. Um, We won't go through in detail uh, of all of them, but their seven means of grace, their seven sacraments are uh, baptism, confirmation, uh, the Eucharist, confession which is also known as penance or reconciliation and that's where the indulgences stuff comes in. Uh, they also have the anointing of the six, uh, anointing of the sick, excuse me, also known as extreme unction and then marriage as we mentioned, and then the holy orders or ordination. those are sacraments where grace again is infused. So the way that it the way that it kind of works is these sacraments doing these provide you grace and then a cycle kind of starts. so you receive the grace, that allows you to merit things that allows you to do good works to then merit more grace um, that grace leads to more merit which leads to more grace which leads to more merit and on and on and on so the bottom line again here is that they do say divine grace is necessary for salvation but it's not sufficient grace is not sufficient there has to be a human contribution uh, a cooperation they would say cooperating with grace is necessary And that cooperation with grace is what merits salvation. If all you had was divine grace and no cooperation, that would not be a saved person, in their view. Uh, Jesus, what role does Jesus play in all of this? We haven't mentioned Jesus uh, very much. That's an important question. Uh, The short answer, the short answer in the Catholic view, is that Christ made this salvation possible through his um, suffering, through his death and resurrection. Uh, in effect what they would say is that Christ purchased the divine grace that is then dispensed by the church um, this is where you hear something called like the Treasury of merit where Christ's work on the on earth and on the cross built this treasury of merit and then of course Mary adds some to that as well but then it's that merit that is given out to people to be able to use in grace and there's um, an abundance of that, and that's where the indulgences come in. You can get some extra merit because that treasury of merit is so full. But Christ purchased that fund of grace that then the church dispenses out. And that's, that's probably as simply um, as I can understand it. But Christ purchased it, and then the church, through the use of the sacraments, distributes that grace uh, out to um, Roman Catholics. Okay. I left like five minutes. We're not gonna do the evaluation today, we'll do that next time, but are there any questions either about what I covered or stuff that I didn't cover, stuff you just had to know about Catholicism? Yeah, Steve?
2: Um, who decides how much justification by faith you need and how much meritorious work you need?
0: Um, you can't really know that. And that's part of the, the burden for a Roman Catholic is to you can never really be at peace with God as a Catholic. You can never be sure, and that's going to one of the th- ways to evaluate is: right. does this provide hope or not? Because you can never know, and that was Martin Luther's struggle. He was agonizing every day over: have I done enough penance to pay for my sins? And you can you can never know, and that's where again purgatory comes in. You don't know how long you'll be there. And
2: so then could the be a day. Could be a, a Used to kind of help ensure that
0: you that it's not too long it in it there. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. We'll go here first. What's Mary's role? You see, like... Well, we we don't have time for <laughs> that. Well, i just wasn't a woman, and I was <laughs> just curious because they, like, give gifts to Mary. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mary hasn't quite been promoted to part of the Quadrinity just yet. <laughs> but she has a very, very serious role for them. Um, and in the... Er, I, I can't get all the way into it. and because of time and capability. But Mary had an important role as the Blessed Mother. She's called blessed in in Scripture. Uh, They refer to her as um, the the God-bearer, the Theotokos, as is the Eastern Church. She had a high role, but as part of the Protestant complaints in the Reformation, and usually what happens with Rome is if other people are disagreeing with them about a doctrine instead of softening on it, They go all in on it. And that's a lot of what's happened with Mary. And like dogmatically teaching uh, the Immaculate Conception, which uh, I used to think was referring to the birth of Christ. Immaculate Conception Conception is referring to Mary, that she was conceived and born without sin. So they teach that Mary was born without sin. Um, Most teach that she was sinless. They teach the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she remained a virgin for her whole life, which would make her a bad wife, a sinful wife, frankly. Um, And they also teach the bodily assumption of Mary, that she didn't physically die, that she was uh, assumed. Um, They don't officially teach that she is a co-redemptrix, is the word that you'll hear, yet, to where she is a co-savior with Christ, but it gets very, very close. And in some... Some countries, some regions, she has been elevated to that level, as have the saints, where people are almost bypassing Christ and worshiping directly Mary or worshiping the saints in that way.
2: That's what I wonder with the
0: prayers to help Mary, so that cool. it Yeah. That was- yeah, so in theory, um, the Eastern Orthodox also pray to saints. In theory on paper, I see what they're getting at. They start to say, just like I might ask Steve to pray for me. I'm not bypassing Jesus and doing that. I'm still praying for myself, but I'm asking for another saint to pray for me, because Steve's a saint, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're all saints. That's what their idea was, that they're praying to the saints to pray for them on their behalf. I don't agree with it, but I get it. But because humans are stupid and fallen and fallible, that's been distorted greatly. And in some regions, um, I, don't, I, think, I don't think the kings are in here. Yeah. yeah, they are back here. Um, they, they've talked about how there's outright worship of, a, I think it was a particular saint, outright worship of that saint. And if you're not willing to talk to them about that saint, if you want to talk about Jesus only, they're not, they're not hearing it. So the, the potential for idolatry has turned into outright idolatry in a lot of places. Any others? Yep. Yeah.
2: So, just to kind of play on the question about the um, So, I grew up Catholic and um, I kind of, my family sort of broke away from that during the divorce. My parents were unworthy to receive communion. Mm. Um, my grandmother, however, still sends me holy water. Just okay. sort of that spiritual warfare, bad dream, new house, you know. Where does Catholicism versus
0: Protestant differ at the means of spiritual warfare? Oh, man, that's a heavy question. Um, yeah, um, do you have an answer to that question? <laughs>
1: so my family is really Catholic, right? Okay. And basically, they put
0: the devil on the back where they're saying that if you don't bother him, he won't bother you. Okay. So that's one point of view. Like thing. bees, <laughs> <laughs> like, like with bees. bees. Just leave them be and then right. they won't bother you, okay.
1: So I guess that's one, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, don't pay attention to it, don't give it power, when really, you know, that's one of the greatest life the says. Maybe you believe it exists.
0: Sure. Okay, interesting. I, I do know that um, they often use, they're more into tokens, like having rosary beads and such, and the Eastern Church, we'll see next week, They uh, the use of icons that they call them, which can be... Like having an Ebenezer, having a physical thing to remind you of a spiritual reality. Again, we can see some merit for that. Uh, it gets taken too seriously. I don't know that I have a great answer to your question on spiritual warfare, but yeah.
1: Something to just remind me. Also, they'll wear a, a red string around the wrist to warn off bad spirits. Or huh? they'll have a, a bracelet with an eye on it. It's called maloloco, and oh, it, it keeps away bad spirits, and then when somebody does black magic on you, it'll break. And that's
0: how
2: you know it to go get clients. Wow. Okay. So, see, my family like it wasn't like you we know, don't obviously it didn't talk about the devil, but it's acknowledging that when you have God, you also have to know that there is evil in the world, there is witchcraft in the world, there are those things, and you have to keep your spiritual arm prepared oh, yes. to raise your children these oh, to be soldiers for Christ. You have oh, yes. to teach them that they're to follow Jesus, but you have to prepare them. Well,
1: we're at war, yeah. Spiritually, I mean, Paul talks about it through all the epistles about the uh, spiritual, uh, about how how Elijah and his friend told him he asked God to open his eyes mm-hmm. because he wasn't talking about natural to see in the spiritual because I mean we may not see it, but there's angels and demons fighting right now over us or around us all the time. We get in our fight against flesh and blood, and against the powers, the principalities, rules of this
0: world. Yeah. And that's what I was you know, I was
2: growing up Catholic. That was a very big thing. And then hmm. now for whenever we broke away from the church and it went into a non denominational church, as a parent, I mean I have four children, my oldest one's ten, and even though we monitor what we absorb through social media, through T V, through music, witchcraft's trending. Mm, all over it's true. the place. It's being one side that
0: crystals and things like that. Yeah, new age. New age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I don't have a, a solution <laughs> for us on that one. Um, I would be surprised if he found two Christians who believe the same thing about <laughs> spiritual warfare. So that's tricky. I don't know what the official Catholic teaching is on it. it sounds like even just in two traditions, you have a little bit of difference and, and such in there. So I don't have a good answer for you on that one.
1: Look at Roman Catholicism, what is officially taught and versus what is practiced at the local level, there's a the huge variation. We yeah, draw up Nancy Pelosi, she says she's a devout Catholic, right? And she told her yes, Catholic teaching. So, yeah, uh, you have it, because it is so large, you have so much variation, on what you've done to to yeah, and that's
0: that's why I'm willing to say that there are. There's a large number of Catholics that are saved, not because they're in the Roman Church, but in spite of it. They're not getting all of the dogmatic teachings. They're not believing in the, in the, uh, the nonsense. They're actually trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. But you've offended these people, <laughs> Tom, and they're, they're leaving. So uh, why don't I pray? Any questions about this we can carry over into next week? Um, Just a a quick primer on Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, I mentioned the split happening in 1054, the Eastern Church. Most Americans are very unfamiliar with the Eastern Church. I know I was uh, until somewhat recently. The reason I considered it in the first place was because we do have the family from Ukraine that are here, if you've met the the Karamovs. They didn't come from a strong Eastern Orthodox tradition. Um, but some of the things that they've said about what they know of church there does sound like that's likely where they were. It is of interest, and as I mentioned, a lot of Americans are being drawn to the the Eastern Church. Um, so it's it's at least good to know some things about it, and it'll be some fun trivia for you to have. You'll learn a big word called called autocephalous next week. It'll be very exciting. Um, but but I'll pray, and then we'll dismiss for today. Well, Lord, we're we're thankful for the scripture you've given to us, and and Father, we, we pray that we would be consistent with what we find to be true in your word, that it would truly be uh, the final word for us, the, the guide to right faith and practice. I pray that we wouldn't be uh, deceived by false teaching, but we would search the scriptures ourselves and be good Bereans. Pray that we would uh, love and pray for the Roman Catholics in our life. Uh, if, if we discern that they are one in need of salvation, that we evangelize them well, if we believe that they are saved, um, that we would help them find true rest in Christ. Uh, I fear that our saved brothers and sisters in the church uh, are not at peace with you, Lord, and we would uh, desire that for them. Pray that this coming week would be a blessed one. Thank you for the weather this last week, and that we could enjoy your creation and all things in Christ's name. Amen.